You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this episode, I will answer the question, what is the expectation of the church concerning Christ's return? The expectation of the church was and is not that Christ can return at any moment, but it is the fact that Christ will indeed come again, but only according to the wisdom and timing of the plan of God. Now, first, let's look briefly at the term, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to the period of time that will begin with the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus taught that his second coming would arrive like a thief in the night. That is, at an unknown day and hour. He taught that it would occur after the tribulation that will be triggered by the abomination event of Daniel's prophecy. And he taught that his return would be signaled by the unique signs in the sun, moon, and stars mentioned in Matthew 24, 29. These signs are the same signs mentioned in Joel 2.31 as what will occur before the arrival of the day of the Lord. Now, both Paul and Peter understood what Jesus was talking about, and both state the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is, it will come at an unknown day and hour. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 2 Peter 3, 10. Now, they use the same thief image that Jesus used in the Olivet Discourse at Matthew 24, 43 and 44. And what they believed and wrote must occur within the same context as what Jesus taught. That is, after the tribulation of those days. So in view of what Jesus taught, what did the disciples expect? Throughout the beginning years of the church, the Christians were taught that Jesus was going to come again. As can be seen, for example, with the Thessalonian believers, who according to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. Now, since there is clearly a promise of Christ's return and our gathering together to him, it is certainly something that believers should be hoping for and waiting for. This attitude expresses the normal Christian life that looks forward to the fulfillment of that promise. At 2 Timothy 4.8, This attitude is described as loving his appearing. However, the fulfillment of that promise must await the perfect timing of the plan of God, just as Paul wrote, which he will bring about at his own time at 1 Timothy 6.15. And as Jesus stated at Acts 1.7, you don't need to know the specific times or time periods which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So during this time prior to that fulfillment, 
Christians should still be loving his appearing and be waiting in great anticipation for his return. We have passages such as 1 Corinthians 1.7, waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. At Romans 8.23 and 25, uh, the attitude of waiting and hope are actually equated. Uh, reading there, and not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Also at Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Also at Galatians 5.5, for we, through the Spirit, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And finally, at Titus 2.13, looking for the happy hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. However, the attitude of looking for and waiting and expecting his return does not mean that he can come at any moment. These words do not indicate any idea of imminence. The same word for eagerly waiting, which is prostekomai, is used at Mark 15:43 for Joseph of Arimathea, who is described as waiting for the kingdom of God. It's used at Luke 2:25. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. It's used at Luke 2:38 that mentions the large group of people who were looking for the redemption of Israel. There is no any moment arrival idea in the minds of these people. Now, all these passages about waiting for his return must fall under the umbrella of previously revealed truth, specifically the words of Jesus. And Jesus taught that certain things must first occur before he returns. Jesus mentioned several factors associated with his second coming. First, he told them that they would have an extensive evangelistic outreach to both Jews and Gentiles before his return. Matthew 10, 16 through 23. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wary as serpents and as innocent as doves, but be on guard against people, for they will hand you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings on my account as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. In the Olivet Discourse, he told them that his arrival, the end, would not come until there was a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. And after his resurrection, toward the end of his 40-day ministry to them, Jesus told them exactly what was expected of them as his witnesses. He told them to go forth into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Not only that, he told them that they would get assistance in this endeavor through the ministry 
of the Holy Spirit. Now, even though during his ministry, Jesus told the disciples that they were disciples of the kingdom of God and that God has chosen to give them the kingdom. And even after the upper room discourse, they still did not fully understand about the kingdom of God until Jesus taught them after his resurrection. Reading from Luke and Acts. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the earthly kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know the chronology or appointed times which the father has set by his own authority. These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, so it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. When Jesus finished this teaching, he ascended away from them into the sky. And even though they immediately received from the angels a confirmation of the promise of his return, for the next several days, while they are in Jerusalem waiting, they are not expecting or looking for the return of Jesus, but they are waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And then after the arrival of the Spirit, the expectation of the disciples and of the church was to fulfill the evangelistic assignment that Jesus had given them. Not only what we saw at Matthew 10, you will not finish with the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. But also in connection with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, as we saw at Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had received a twofold promise concerning the coming of the Messiah. The first factor was the promise of personal salvation. This was always based on personal faith in the messianic promise that God would provide a redeemer to bring individual forgiveness of sins. Peter explained it at Acts 10, 42-43. Jesus ordered us to proclaim to the people and to testify solemnly that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify of him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And at Romans 10.13, Paul stated when he quotes Joel 2.32, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The second aspect of the Messianic promise is national salvation for Israel. At Hosea 5.14 and following, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, yes, I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be no one to rescue. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, 
in their tribulation, they will search for me. Come, let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise, up, up, raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let's learn. Let's press on to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, as the spring rain waters the earth. All throughout the Old Testament, these two factors were often mentioned, uh, as it were, in the same breath, without the details and distinction being uh, uh, clarified between them. Uh, Peter did the same thing. At Acts 3, 18 through 21, Peter mentions both of these factors in his message to the multitude of Jews gathered to the porch of Solomon at the temple in Jerusalem. But the things which God previously announced by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that, one, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This refers to the personal, spiritual refreshment of salvation from sin and the experience of the abundant life of peace and joy. Uh, Jesus uh, mentioned it at John 10, 10. I am the uh, rather I am come that they might have life and have abundance. And at Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah proclaimed at 6, 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. And then next, Peter mentions the national promise. That he may send Jesus, the Messiah appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. Now this refers to the perfect timing of the plan of God for the return of Christ as we saw earlier at 1 Timothy 6.15, which he will bring about at his own time. The personal blessing will be experienced immediately, the salvation of the soul. The national blessing will not be experienced until the nation as a whole proclaims, praised be him who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus taught at Matthew 23.39. It is then that the Father will send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you. Now, let's look at Paul. What did he expect? After Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, he stated very clearly what was expected of him and what he could expect. First, to Ananias at Acts 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. And at Acts 22, Ananias said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a message from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Then to Saul directly at Acts 22, Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. At Acts 26, Jesus said to him, Get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you 
to appoint you as servant and a witness, not only to the things in which you have seen me, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And later to Paul directly at Acts 23. But on the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Be courageous, for as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. And then at Acts 27 uh, on the ship, Paul stated, For this very night an angel of God to whom I belong, whom I also serve, came to me, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And during his first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote at Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to prefer. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to, to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your pride in Christ may be abundant because of me by my coming to you again. And during his second Roman imprisonment, 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's expectation is to face physical death and then be rewarded. So, although Paul knew and expected and was looking for the promised return of Jesus, he also knew that certain things had to occur first. Personal, as we just saw, globally, as he taught to the Thessalonians at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Now, we ask you, brethren, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from what you know or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it, that is the coming of the Lord, our gathering together to him and the day of the Lord. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, what about James? What did he expect? Let's look at James 5, 7 through 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The Lord will not return until certain events occur, the early and late rains. But what does the idea of near mean? The verb is engizo. It means to be at or close to any particular goal that is in view. It can mean right now, or it can mean soon, or it can mean to be in the process of arriving at the stated goal. For example, at 1 Peter 4, 7, he wrote, the end of all things is drawing near. 
Acts 7.17, uh, Stephen was speaking. He said, but as the time of the promise was coming near, which God has assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Also at Hebrews 10.25, as you see the day drawing near. Now here in James, the verb is a present active indicative. It means the coming of the Lord is approaching. That is, it is in the process of reaching the point where it will uh, actually occur. This is James' way of describing what Jesus taught to be precedence to his return at Luke 21. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see for yourselves and know that summer is now near. So you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. So in view of the severe persecution that James just described, he exhorts, be patient, relax in the confidence that God has perfect timing and will bring it about in his own time after the early and late rains occur. Paul expressed the same thing at Philippians 4, 5. In view of the various pressures from people and circumstances, Paul exhorts, let your yielding attitude be known to all people. The Lord is near. In other words, be patient and leave everything in the hands of the wisdom and timing of God, which is exactly what he expressed in verses 6 and 7. Stop worrying about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He wrote the same thing at 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not judge anything before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then praise will come to each person from God. And this is probably what the expression Maranatha means at 1 Corinthians 16.22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is under judgment. Maranatha. In a context of discipline from the Lord, what is Paul's proclamation? Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. This is the mantra of expectation for the church. The Lord is coming. In the book of the Revelation, John closes his record of all the visions he received with the same statement of expectation spoken by the Lord himself. Revelation 22, 7, 12, and 20. Behold, I am coming quickly. This statement is made to give us assurance of his promised coming. It must be kept in the context of the whole Bible and especially the book of Revelation. At verse 7, it is made with a focus on heeding the information in the vision shown to John. At verse 12, it is made with a focus on rewards for faithful service. And at verse 20, John repeats the promise, yes, I am coming quickly. He ends with the phrase that expresses the confident trust in the wisdom and timing of God's plan, come, Lord Jesus. This is not a command to Jesus for him to actually come right now or even soon, as if any individual or even the church collectively could bring about such an event. It is a faith rest attitude that relaxes in the fact that Jesus will come according to the perfect timing of the plan of God the Father. It recognizes that Jesus will indeed come back 
and the believer is totally compliant with everything that involves. Now, let's look at Peter. What was his expectation? Jesus told him, John 21, 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put your belt on you and bring you where you don't want to go. So Peter's expectation would be to die at an old age in what appears to be a persecution context. And in the meantime, while Peter waited with hope and confidence that Jesus was going to fulfill his promise and come again, he would expect to be functional as a witness of Jesus, carrying the gospel throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and ministering to the sheep of the Lord. Just as he wrote at 2 Peter 1:12 and 14, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Thus he wrote that Christians should live in holy conduct and godliness, waiting for and promoting the coming of the day of God. Just as the writer of Hebrews exhorts us at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold firmly to the confession of the expectation without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So with Paul, Peter, and James, and the other believers of the early church, we believers today need to be loving his appearing. That is, looking for and waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. But we need to be patient until the early and late rains arrive, until the leaves on the trees start to appear. Until next time, have a great day. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode.